Welcome to CME on ReachMD. This activity entitled Management of Heart Failure, Time to Consider New Options, is provided by Medtelligence and is supported by an independent educational grant from V4 Pharma. Prior to beginning the activity, please be sure to review the faculty and commercial support disclosure statements as well as the learning objectives. We know that derangements in potassium levels are common in patients with heart failure and are associated with poor clinical outcomes. Now, whether this is due to the direct effect of elevated serum potassium levels remains a subject of debate. But concerns and fear by physicians about hyperkalemia clearly lead to suboptimal use of inhibitors of the renin angiotensin aldosterone system. And this can negatively affect patient outcomes. So how do we as physicians best manage these risks? So welcome to CME on ReachMD. I'm Dr. Austin Stack from the University of Limerick in Ireland, and joining me today to discuss how we can best manage hyperkalemia and heart failure and ensure our heart failure patients get the full benefit of RASI therapy is Dr. Mikhail Kasabarov from the University of Missouri, Kansas in the United States. Hi, Austin. It's really good to be with you today. The goal in the outpatient setting is to optimize RAS inhibitor therapy while normalizing serum potassium levels and correcting any imbalances in potassium homeostasis. Mikhail, what options do we have available to manage elevations in serum potassium? One, of course, is dietary intervention. So one of the things we can do is to try to convince our patients to adhere to low potassium diets. And uh, the problem, of course, is that those diets are very difficult to adhere to. The other option is using high doses of loop diuretics. And, you know, that's not something that we as cardiologists and certainly heart failure cardiologists particularly favor, partly because we want to use the absolute minimum dose of loop diuretics that we can get away with while keeping the patient adequately decongested. We know that using larger or higher doses of loop diuretics can really cause issues with renal hemodynamics. It can rev up counter-regulatory hormones, and actually, in some cases, may make things worse. So that's not an option that we like. And frankly, it's also not especially effective in every patient because the response to that from potassium homeostasis standpoint is variable. The last ones that I will mention in terms of chronic management of hyperkalemia is potassium binders. And really the only one we had available until a few years ago was uh, sodium polystyrene sulfonate or SPS. And there are issues there as well. The biggest of which is that it's really difficult to tolerate chronically. SPS has been associated with uh, very frequent incidents of gastrointestinal side effects, things like constipation and diarrhea. So patients generally do not tolerate it more than just a few doses or a few days. There are also potential concerns about more rare, significant gastrointestinal side effects those tend to happen mostly in hospitalized patients. But, you know, I think for all effect and purposes, it's hard to see most patients being able to tolerate SPS for perhaps, you know, six, seven days. That's what the data would tell us. And so it's not a great option for chronic hyperkalemia management. And then finally, SPS also is a potential significant sodium load, which we would like to avoid in patients that have heart failure with reduced ejection fraction and a sodium sensitive. So I would say up until recently, the options were very limited, uh, which is why when you actually look at the data and what happens in registries and what happens in real world clinical practice is that what people end up going to, people, I mean, clinicians end up going to as an option, they know that's going to work and kind of 
maybe easiest and most straightforward is to down titrate or discontinue RAS inhibitors. A key question that you may have is when do we start a potassium binder in order to optimize RASI therapy? And the consensus from the European Society of Cardiology is that an approved potassium lowering agent is recommended once serum potassium levels exceed five millimole per liter in order to achieve the optimal or recommended dose of RAS inhibitor therapy. Now, we have a brief animation video here to show how pterimer and SZC work. So let's take a look at this over the next minute. Hyperkalemia is a serious condition that is common in those with heart failure and chronic kidney disease. Total body potassium is balanced by multiple mechanisms, including those within the gastrointestinal, or GI, and renal systems. Specifically, the kidneys and renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system, or RAS, play a primary role in potassium homeostasis. Disturbances in RAS, due to comorbid disease and or guideline-recommended therapies, can impair renal potassium clearance, leading to elevations in serum levels. Novel potassium binders, pterimer and sodium zirconium cyclosilicate, or SZC, are designed to remove potassium from the GI tract. In the lumen of the distal colon, where potassium levels are highest, pterimer microbeads exchange calcium for potassium with a high binding capacity. SZC crystals exchange sodium or hydrogen for potassium within the GI tract. These binders help maintain normal potassium levels when hyperkalemia is present. Now, pterimer and SZC were primarily studied in patients with chronic kidney disease, but also patients with heart failure were included in these clinical trials. Mikhail, what can you tell us about the efficacy of potassium binders in patients with heart failure? So let's kind of break it down by the two novel potassium binders and talk about the data that we have for those. And we'll start with pterimer. Uh, so pterimer is a, an exchange resin. It's a polymer that exchanges potassium for calcium. Because it's an exchange resin the polymer, we think that it's most likely starting to work when it gets to distal colon. And so in the OPAL-HK study of pterimer, what we learned is that in patients with mild to moderate hyperkalemia, it can effectively normalize potassium levels within a relatively brief period of time and then keep potassium levels in normal range for a period of about four weeks. And it was effective in bringing potassium levels to normal and maintaining them in a normal kalemic range, uh, regardless of whether the patients had mild or moderate hyperkalemia. The AMITIS-DN study was a longer-term open-label single-arm study that looked at efficacy and safety of pterimer for up to one year. Again, in patients with mild to moderate hyperkalemia, many of whom, of course, had chronic kidney disease and some of whom had heart failure. And again, what we observed was that pterimer was effective in normalizing potassium levels in that patient population and maintaining potassium levels in the normal clinic range for up to one year. When it comes to tolerability and safety, what we observed in those studies is that it was well-tolerated. The incidence of mild to moderate gastrointestinal adverse events was a bit higher than it was in placebo, and there are no head-to-head -head comparisons, of course, with SPS 
But if you kind of historically compare the data, it appears to be better tolerated from a gastrointestinal standpoint, certainly than older binders like SPS. The one other factors that I will mention in terms of tolerability and safety, it's effect on electrolytes. Of course, when you give medication like a potassium binder, you would expect that a few patients may develop hypokalemia. Those studies did show low incidence of hypokalemia. Most of those events were mild, and most of those events were easily corrected. And there were also some patients that developed low magnesium level hypomagnesemia, but the clinical significance of those hypomagnesemic events uh, remains unclear. So overall, I would say from a tolerability and safety, safety standpoint, things look quite favorable. When we look at SZC, sodium zirconium cyclosilicate, it's an inorganic crystal, it's not exchange resin, and it has a high affinity for potassium cations, doesn't appear to bind bivalent cations like magnesium or calcium. It exchanges potassium for sodium or hydrogen, and it's possible it may start binding potassium in more of a higher portion or upper portion of the gastrointestinal tract because it appears to have relatively quick upset of action. What we know from several trials now with SVC is that, again, it normalizes potassium levels quickly. It maintains potassium levels in the normal clinic range, regardless of patient's comorbidity, so severity of hyperkalemia for up to four weeks in a harmonized trial. And again, in a Longer-term, a single-arm, open-label study called ZSO5, we see that it can normalize potassium levels in patients with hyperkalemia, mild, moderate, and a few patients with severe hyperkalemia maintains those potassium levels in the normal range over a long period of time, up to one year. When we look at tolerability and safety, again, from a gastrointestinal standpoint, it appears to be well-tolerated. The safety events essentially center around few patients developing hypokalemia. Again, these events are relatively uncommon, and most of those patients, uh, nearly all of those patients had mild hypokalemia that was easily corrected. And then with higher doses of SEC, uh, there is increased incidence of edema, low extremity edema. Bringing it back to heart failure, I would say that uh, there was definitely a proportion of patients in both Paterima studies and SEC studies that had heart failure. And these medications appear to be equally efficacious in patients with heart failure as there are in patients that did not have a history of heart failure. The problem is we don't know what kind of heart failure these patients had. They were not very well characterized in terms of the ejection fraction and the background medical therapy for heart failure. And so we definitely need more data that is specifically dedicated to the heart failure and reduced ejection fraction population because that's where we mostly use RAS inhibitors. And the good news is those trials are on the way. So we have a diamond trial with spetiramer in patients with heart failure reduced ejection fraction. That's actually a true heart failure outcome trial. It's going to look at a primary endpoint of cardiovascular death or worsening heart failure. And then we have prioritized uh, trial with SZC that's currently ongoing. That's not an outcome trial, but it's looking more at the question whether using SZC in patients with half ref heart failure with reduced ejection fraction, whether that can help optimize renin-angiotensin aldosterone system inhibition while keeping potassium levels in a safe range. So the good news is we have lots more data coming in the heart failure space with these agents. Mikhail, it's probably well worth reiterating uh, from those studies, and particularly the OPAL-HK, that absolutely one of the key outcomes was the normalization of serum potassium, which both of these novel potassium binders did effectively. But also in the OPAL-HK study, that 90% of patients in the Paterma group were able to continue and remain on maximal RAS inhibition. And this is probably one of the key messages that we want to send out to the clinical community, that there's good evidence now 
that we can normalize serum potassium, we can treat serum potassium, and at the same time, ensure that patients are on maximal therapy to block the renin-angiotensin system, in other words, to get those good outcomes, both renal outcomes and cardiovascular outcomes. But as you rightly say, we need the, the specific outcome data, and hopefully the DIAMOND study and the prioritized HF will give us the answers that we need over, over the coming years. Mikhail, what other practical tips do you have for cardiologists in using these agents in heart failure? I think while we don't have official kind of professional study guidelines for frequency of monitoring potassium levels after initiation of potassium binders, I think uh, taking a similar approach to what we've done in clinical trials that have been done or a similar approach to what the guidelines recommend for monitoring after studying an MRA, for example, would be quite reasonable. So what do I do? If I start the patient on a potassium binder, I would normally check potassium level. Well, kind of depends on where potassium was to begin with. Obviously, if it was really significantly elevated, I may be even more careful and do even more frequent checks. But in a normal situation, when you're dealing with a patient that has mild to moderate hyperkalemia, you know, typically what I would do after I start a potassium binder, whether it's pteromer or SEC, is to frequently check potassium levels. Typically, would be a, about a week after I start as a potassium binder. And then, depending on what the results are, monitor it perhaps a couple of weeks afterwards, and then one month after that, as long as things are stable. Of course, if I'm combining use of potassium binder with titration of RAS inhibitors, including MRAs, then you may need to monitor things a bit more frequently. The good news is that, you know, just like what we see in clinical trials, uh, for many patients, once they kind of settle in terms of their RAS inhibition dose, MRA dose, and potassium binder dose, you know, and you've convinced yourself after monitoring them for a few months, you know, so initially every few weeks and then monthly and then maybe every three months that things are stable. Of course, the frequency of monitoring can be dialed down. I think that's a very good point, Mikhail, in terms of surveillance of patients on RAS inhibitor therapy and certainly um, in terms of how often we should, should monitor them. Certainly there's evidence from some of the population-based courts that, you know, we typically don't check uh, potassium that often, even following the initiation of an ACE inhibitor. And, and data from the SCREAM court showed about 30 to 40% only had a potassium check in the first month following the initiation of a RAS inhibitor. So clearly, what we do in clinical trials sometimes is not translated into, into clinical practice. No, I couldn't agree more, Austin. I mean, I think appropriate monitoring is absolutely critical. And then the good news, I would say also, is that both of the novel potassium binders, including pteromer and SEC, are titratable. I 100% agree. To my nephrology and cardiology colleagues, we need to utilize all available tools including these novel potassium binders to improve the care of our patients with heart failure. Thanks very much, Austin. It was great to be with you. You've been listening to CME on ReachMD. This activity is provided by Medtelligence and is supported by an independent educational grant from V4 Pharma. To receive your free CME credit or to download this activity, go to reachmd.com slash heart failure. Thank you for listening.